The following podcast includes explicit language, including, well, you'll just have to wait and see. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of Christmas time. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays to all. On this week's show, we're going to talk through the most memorable, important, and best sports moments of the year. Mark Wright will also be here to talk about his podcast, The Bison Project, on the 1971 NCAA champion Howard soccer team and the injustice of how their title got taken from them. And finally, we'll end the year with one of our favorite segments from the recent past, in which we were joined by a mystery guest. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen. And if you're in the mood for some holiday binging, we've got six seasons of the podcast One Year that are truly delectable for your enjoyment. Also in D.C. is Stefan Fatsis. He's the author of the books Word Freak, A Few Seconds of Panic, and Wild and Outside, all great holiday gifts, especially the ones that are still in print. Merry Christmas, Stefan. What is the best gift that you ever got as a child? It was the Scrabble board I got when I was 10, obviously. Did you know it at the time where you're like, what is this garbage? I think there's, I mean, if you look on my Facebook page, it is the, uh, it is my, my profile photo of me at 10 holding that board under, you know, next to the Christmas tree. I look pretty happy. So I must've been into it. <laughs> World's uh, word freakiest 10 year old. Uh, also with us from California, Slate's own Joel Anderson. Um, on last week's show, Stefan, you may have noted that Joel decided that since you talk about Scrabble all the time, he's actually going to go back and start talking even more about how he was the fastest 10-year-old? It wasn't just Scrabble. It wasn't just Scrabble. It was softball. So I was just like, oh, okay, we're talking about our athletic accomplishments again. Yeah. Right. So I just felt like it was, I just wanted to remind people, you know, we may have new (laughs) listeners, uh, Josh and Stefan. They may not know that I was the fastest 10-year-old in the country in 1988. So was your favorite gift as a kid? Uh, track spikes? God. Is that uh, completely unrelated to your... Uh... There were there, there are probably two. Uh, one, I got a robot, uh, like a little remote control <laughs> robot that I remember being crazy about at six. And it seemed, you know, that seemed like very futuristic. But the more meaningful gift that I got um, was when I was like 12 and I got an electric typewriter. Oh, and wow. That... That was a that was a big deal uh, at the time because now I could you know do my school papers I could write on there if I wanted so yeah did you think you wanted to be deal. a writer even at age twelve oh yeah I knew absolutely I've been writing stories since I was like five years old and stuff like I knew that that's really sweet this is all I wanted to do so yeah yeah it was really cool do you still have the typewriter no oh that thing sucked man. <laughs> As it turned gonna out. Be like, no, As it it's in the out. TCU Hall of Fame. Yeah, no, not quite, not quite. Wait, since we're talking about stuff, what was your favorite gift then, Josh? Probably a ping pong table, which has no particular meaning about my, uh, you hmm. know, where I ended up in life, except that I like ping pong. <laughs> Josh is very good at ping pong, I will say. Man, you're low key. I mean, why don't you talk about your athletic accomplishments then, Josh? Maybe, maybe next year. That'll be my that'll be my resolution. We are going to get on with the show in mere moments. But first, for the last time in 2023, but not the last time ever, we wanted to thank our Slate Plus members for making this show possible. So thank you so much. It's deeply appreciated. And this week, we're going to show our appreciation with an end-of-year bonus segment. So in our main segment, we're talking about our favorite sports moments of the year. In the bonus segment, we're going to talk about even more favorites. So just like... There's going to be a little extra, a little extra favorite for you at the end. This is a special uh, topper, tree topper. Is that what uh, the Christians call it? Yeah, I know. You didn't say anything about Hanukkah or Kwanzaa or anything at the top either, Josh. So you don't want to forget that, do you? I don't want to forget it. Thank you for thank you for remembering. And we will always remember the Slate Plus members. If you want to hear our bonus segments and bonus segments on other Slate shows, get ad-free listening for all Slate podcasts and support us. You need to be a Slate Plus member. To sign up, go to slate.com slash hangupplus. That's slate.com slash hangupplus. So we're talking about the most memorable sports moments of the year. There's all sorts of categories that we can uh, fit them into. If we're going strictly chronologically, we obviously have to start with college football's national championship game, but some of us don't think chron- some of us don't think chronologically. Wait, is that 
Is that chronological? <laughs> Didn't Demar Hamlin happen before that? Great uh, catch. So if we're thinking, chron- okay, if we're thinking chronologically, right. we would have to start with Demar Hamlin's collapse. And we have a whole list here, and we can go through most or much of it as we go along in the segment. But Stefan, I mean, the Demar Hamlin collapse. I think it's one of the few uh, moments from this past year, given my short-term memory, where I can actually remember where I was. I can remember what I felt. I can remember what I was thinking at the time. And that is a moment that I think speaks to all sorts of larger issues in sports, as well as being a kind of where were you when it happened thing. Yeah, it is the rare sports moment these days, I think, that we can all say like with great specificity what we were thinking and watching and and doing at the time. I remember I was not watching the game and saw online that something was going on. Uh, probably on Twitter, and rushed over and turned on the television in the house where we were staying over the winter break for a few days. It was horrifying. It was, you know, we immediately started texting and talking about how we were going to talk about this uh, on this program. And it remains sort of just, you know, the sport obviously goes on and went on almost immediately. But I think we were a little naive about that in the moment. Yeah, we were a little naive about that. And, you know, would any of us have thought that DeMar Hamlin would be playing again? Uh, I can't say that we would have said that. At, you know, at the moment, we weren't sure DeMar Hamlin was going to live. But the larger questions of sort of football and its future all pretty quickly got, you know, swept back away when the games resumed. And that's the nature of our relationship with football in this country, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know if I thought that anything fundamental was going to change about football, but I did think that it might cause a shift in public opinion about the game or maybe, you know, I don't know. I don't know what we thought that we might see that would be significant in the moment. But yeah, you're right, Josh. I think we were all a little naive in the moment about what would happen and things just went right back to it. And I'm not even trying to insult anybody or, you know, cast any aspersions about things. But, you know, I still have friends and friends of friends that have children that play tackle football at this age. And I thought that was one thing that I was like, all right, maybe everybody now given the data and the information that we know that tackle football is, it's not something that really any human should be doing, but at a minimum, people under the age of 14, like there's enough data that knows that it's unsafe for, you know, children under the age of 14 to play, but that's still, it never really seeped through. And I think that's just because everybody knows that the game goes on and it's kind of like a car accident or anything else. This is like, well, that happened to somebody else. It doesn't really affect you until it happens to you, right? So, um, yeah, we got right back to it. And, you know, DeMar, you know, is, is back on a roster and that's just, you know, the games went on. Here we are, right? So, yeah, I mean, it seemed like a big deal at the time, but as we close out this year, it just, it didn't have any staying power in quite that way. I'll point out, Joel, that the Washington Post just last week published a story by Dave Shinen and Emily Giambalvo as part of a series about the state of football in America. And their year-ending piece is about the declining participation rates in the sport and who's still playing. And their conclusion, there are wide divisions marked by politics, economics, and race. There's a continued decline in participation among kids, and the gap in terms of who's playing continues to grow. The number of white players declining in college, the number of black players rising faster than the rates of demographic changes. So this is kind of predictable. We've seen this happening. Wealthier white people are saying, no, we're not going to play, and in poorer communities, football retains its hold. Yeah, it's a real testament to uh, the enduring hold of football, because usually in other sports, like it, that sort of is the tipping point, like boxing, like boxing doesn't have nearly the hold in the public imagination that it did when there were more white, you know, champion boxers or more white boxers, period. And um, it sort of declined in popularity. That's not what's happened in football. And uh, you got to think that there's not much that's going to to change absent some real, real, real societal or cultural shift here. All right, Stefan, we've got our list here. Where do you want to go next? Are we sticking to the chronology or not? Well, because I don't think we should. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't think we need to. <laughs> you know, nothing else happened in January that I remember. So, 
TCU lost on what day? Was that on New Year's Day? I think didn't TCU win no, no, no. on New Year's Day? Didn't actually if we were going down, no, we'd beat Michigan. Noted yeah, noted cheater. Yeah. Noted yeah. noted cheater yeah. Michigan. Um, <laughs> TCU right. won. So that was a big so win. You don't want to talk about the the college football playoff finals then, I'm guessing. Well, I mean we're good. We're, Georgia won. We're covered there. Do- didn't Georgia won, correct? See that cutback covers it. <laughs> that, <was laughs> that does cover it. Mm-hmm. That is, that really does cover it. Yeah, Stefan, you're welcome to stick to chronology or hop around, whatever you please. Let's hop around because I think some of the biggest stories in sports in 2023 were about women's sports. And I think you have to start with the the Women's World Cup where Spain won, but the championship was obscured by the sexist behavior of the head of the Spanish Federation on the field and in general. And that was a riveting moment in sports. And it reflected how far that sports have come. Um, Spain was a, a country that was sort of an afterthought. They treated the women poorly for decades. They didn't invest any money in their teams. And then in the last six to eight years, um, Spanish clubs spent money and created women's teams. And the the result was this incredible run at the Women's World Cup, a Women's World Cup that was notable also, of course, for the United States going out in the round of 16. And that's an example, Joel, of a story and a moment where things didn't just go back to normal. Luis Rubiales, that of the Spanish Federation, lost his job. Jorge Vilda, the coach, was out. And there was a kind of social movement around this in in Spain, where the women on that team, I think, were not just sports heroes, but have kind of helped to change the culture there. And so it's easy to be cynical, especially around American football and around, you know, like we talked about with the DeMar Hamlin story. But there are certainly examples, this being a leading example where sports does change things or where things do change in sports. Yeah, it's pro- it's promising and it does show that there's still I mean although this was still, you know, was sort of limited to the realm of sports, but um it shows that there behind activism if there's real movement and unity among folks that you can get big changes made and I hope um you know, we can see more of that in football, particularly college sports in the next year. You know, I've been hoping that college athletes would, if not unionize or in some states where they're passing, you know, laws banning DEI programs or whatever, that maybe someday that, you know, athletes will come together and boycott to get some real change. And there are models for it out there. It's just you hope that people will have the courage and willingness to do that. But, you know, actually, I was thinking, you know, my mind goes to track. You know what I'm saying? We were talking about women's sports and Shakiri Richardson. I don't think if we had started out the year 2023 and we had said, you know, Shakiri Richardson is going to be a world champion. She's going to be, you know, kind of elevated back to the status of an American hero again, an American track comeback, hero Comeback athlete of the year. Yeah, 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 man. And, um, you know, people seem to receive her warmly. Like, she seemed to be ready for a moment. Like, she's still, you know, she's still young. She's still a little burned, I think, by how she was treated in, in, in previous years and the disappointment around uh, the Olympics in 2021, but uh, that she was able to you know, run some of the fastest times in the world um, and seems poised to have a real big year next year at the Olympics. Like that was that for me. I was like, oh, wow, it's good to see her get back on track. You don't want to throw anybody away that young. And you just, you know, I thought the, you know, rumors of her demise were greatly exaggerated. She was really young and she had a chance to mature and get better at her craft and all those things happen. So I'm interested to see what will happen to her next year, too. 92,000 fans at a Nebraska women's volleyball game in the football stadium there. 9.9 million to watch LSU beat Iowa in um, the women's college basketball final and just women's college basketball in general expanding in, in popularity. And you even see that with what we've been talking about with LSU. It's now a sport that generates controversy. It's a sport that creates news cycles with things that are happening both on the court and off the court. And it'll be interesting, Stefan, to see if that trajectory continues in 2024 and beyond. Yeah. And at a professional level, too, I think we saw some major progress with women's sports. The WNBA season was by far the most chronicled Mm -hmm. um, year in the league's 25-plus year history now. Um, The Las Vegas Aces are being talked about as a true dynasty a team of superstars. People are having general, you know, public conversation, water cooler talk about 
these teams um, and how they were constructed and how this league has presented them. Um, and then we also had the retirement of a, a women's sports icon in Megan Rapino, um, someone who, as we discussed on the show, really carried herself with a degree of awareness and class and maturity and intelligence that is rare in sports full stop. Um, whether you agree with her politics or not, this is a woman who um, figured out how to elevate the sport that she was really good at um, in ways that drew attention both to the game itself and to social issues that she cared about. All right, Joel, let's do a couple more and then we can um, continue in the bonus segment. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, we could talk about Sports Illustrated's Sportsman of the Year, uh, Deion Sanders, because, um, I mean, you you can say whatever you want to say about whether or not that was the right choice. And I don't necessarily know if that's the guy that I would have chosen as Sportsman of the Year, even though understanding it's not about who is the best or whatever. Um, it's about who generated the most news. But you can't deny I mean, we hadn't heard anything from the University of Colorado's football program really nationally since like the, you know, 20 years ago, maybe, uh, under Gary Barnett. And for Dion to have generated so much attention, heat, media coverage around what was still a four and eight football program, right, is pretty remarkable. And when we talked about it during the year, I thought that it was going to bring some sea change to college football. What actually it is, it seems that like Dion's just sort of ahead of the curve on the change, right? They're like he, the wholesale embrace of the transfer portal and rebuilding your roster that way, it like, I think that he took that model, and which a lot of other people were doing, and took it to its extreme. And I think that other people are trying to assess and we'll figure out in the next year whether or not that's the way you build a college football program. I doubt it. I think you can make a good football team, but can you build a program that way? I don't know. But regardless, Dion. um, did a lot of work putting Colorado back on the map this year, I think. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what year two is like, because he's forgiven for anything that happens this year because the situation was so dire on the field beforehand. So anything would constitute an improvement. But I think the real test of his ability to build the program is year two and, and year three. It's obviously interesting that they're moving to the Big 12. And I think when we're doing this at the end of next year, you know, the new Big Ten with USC, UCLA, Oregon, Washington, the new SEC with Texas and Oklahoma, that's going to feel very different. The 12-team playoff um, uh, next year. The 12-team playoff, exactly. Yeah. Um, the new ACC <laughs> with SMU. I mean, <laughs> I mean, Stefan, on, on a less serious note than the DeMar Hamlin thing, but maybe the story I'm most interested to know what we'll think about it in a year is the Michigan sign-stealing scandal. There's obviously more to um, be decided in terms of potential punishments. There's more to come out in terms of reporting about what exactly went on and who knew what and when. But will this just all feel like a kind of bizarre delusion or like something that we just like de developed this like kind of maniacal obsession over for no reason? Or does it actually speak to something larger? Is there a kind of meaning to it or is it, you know, serious in some other way that we're not thinking about right now or does it end up being a sort of typical bureaucratic outcome where michigan gets its its championship revoked at some point in the future assuming they win their championship of course <laughs> or if their whole season is wiped out and all the the typical tut-tutting that we've experienced in college football for decades goes on for one more cycle at least until the whole thing changes and football breaks away from the college sports infrastructure and creates its own whatever 64-team super conference um, with no real oversight. Presumably cheating will still be uh, frowned upon in whatever new uh you know, structure college football takes on from here on out. So. But maybe not this kind of cheating. Maybe not this kind of cheating. <laughs> like maybe it'll be, you know, something else. But yeah. yeah. Any uh, final thoughts before we move along? Any uh, things that you'll remember about 2023 or things that we haven't uh, discussed yet? Do we want to tease what we're going to talk about in the bonus segment or should we just uh, give our one sentence? I think you're going to want to talk about Saudi money and soccer and golf. I, I feel like, I feel like we didn't get one. to that. Well, I think there's the uh, ding dong, the witch is dead, Dan Snyder finally kicked <laughs> out of Washington. 
Y'all lost Dan Snyder and possibly the Wizards uh, there in 2023. <laughs> so, I mean, I, it, it, you know, sometimes, you know, addition by subtraction, you know? All right, we'll get to all of that and a bit more coming up in our uh, bonus segment. But up next, Mark Wright on Howard's 1971 NCAA Soccer Champions. In the 1960s and 70s, soccer was still a niche college sport. St. Louis University won nine NCAA Division I men's titles. San Francisco lifted multiple trophies. Hartwick College was a power, and so was Philadelphia Textile. But the unlikeliest little guy was Howard, which in 1971 became the first historically black college or university to win a D1 championship in any sport when it defeated St. Louis 3-2 at the Orange Bowl to complete a perfect season. The celebration, though, was short-lived. Before the start of the 72 season, the NCAA received an anonymous complaint that Howard had fielded ineligible players. The head coach, Lincoln Phillips, benched players whom investigators were targeting, and the Bison were ousted by St. Louis in the semifinals. We played against this entire wretched system of this society, Phillips said at the Final Four. I would say that the NCAA is guilty of practicing racism. A few months later, the NCAA stripped Howard of its title. The story of the 1971 team is the subject of The Bison Project, a new three-part podcast from Meadowlark Media. Mark Wright wrote and reported the series. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. Mark, the Howard coach and his program did bounce back and win the 74 tournament. You worked on an ESPN short documentary film about that team a few years ago. What made you want to go back and tell the story of the 71 team? Really, I got to know a lot of those players from uh, the 1974 team and the, the 71 team. And when we finished the, the, the project that you mentioned, which was called Redemption Song, I remember when we premiered the film at Howard at, at Crampton Auditorium, I remember looking out in the audience and seeing a lot of happy faces from 74 and seeing a lot of, a lot of guys from 71 that felt like, really, I, I wasn't on that team. I went to Howard, sure, but I don't really feel a part of that team. And we feel a little bit slighted. And I, I made a promise to them, a promise that I had no idea that I could, I even had the wherewithal to uh, make good on. I said, look, at some point, I'm going to come back to this story because I know Redemption Song was only a 17-minute short film, which was great, and I'm super proud of it. And uh, it told their story. But 71, the story of 1971 wasn't fully told. We just kind of glossed over it. And ever since then, and that was 2016, I hadn't put the story down until now. Mark, I'm just sort of curious. Um, how well-known is this story on campus and among Howard alums? Like, is it basically like a part of campus lore that, hey, you know, once upon a time, we had this great team that was stripped of an NCAA championship 50 years ago? Or is the sort of thing that as you unearth and you start telling people, they're like, wow, I didn't even know that that had happened. Quick answer, not well-known, not highly appreciated because it's not well-known, right? Uh, as, as you know, I'm a Howard alum. And uh, doing interviews like this, sometimes when I get uh, super happy, I'll get myself in trouble and, and throw my school <laughs> under the bus. But I'll throw myself under the bus. I'm a Howard alum. I played uh, high school soccer for the captain of the 1974 team and the star freshman on that 71 team, Ian Bain. I didn't know the story. So when I, came, when I reconnected with my coach in 2015, 2014, and both of those teams were collectively enshrined in Howard's Hall of Fame, I was kind of talking to my coach and I'm like, coach, wow, that's amazing. I'm so sorry I missed uh, that ceremony. If I'd have known, I would have been there. You know that. He was like, yeah, we, we, we were decent. We were all right. I'm like, okay, decent. All right. He's like, yeah, you ought to read Lincoln Phillips' book. That's his coach. Read Lincoln's Phillips book and have a look for yourself and you tell me if it's a good enough story. Such a coach, right? Such an educator. Yeah. Literally, I was 16 years old again and he just sent me <laughs> on an errand. I read the book in two, two weeks and came back and said, oh my gosh, coach, this is a 30 for 30. Do you know what that is? 
sure. Uh, if you say it's good, then we'll go with that. That's just who, if you heard the podcast, that's just who Ian Bain is, was, and um, will be when I talk to him in 15 minutes because he's going to want to get a recap of this conversation because I'm still 16. It's even crazier to me because, and you, you tell me if I'm wrong about this, Mark, this is the only national championship, NCAA championship, that Howard has won in any sport, correct? Correct. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the trophy is in the basketball arena for the 1974 tournament. I just saw it when I was there to see a D.C. high school volleyball game. It's in the, the trophy case, and you would kind of just pass by it, and unless you kind of stopped and took a closer look, you it, it's not like it's in this like enormous shrine or anything. It's kind of just a humble little trophy there. And so I was really grateful to be able to get the backstory to it from your podcast, Mark. Um, and I just wanted to go back to Ian Bain. Um, for folks who've, who've listened, the story starts in Trinidad. And I wonder if you could kind of take us back there to, I guess, where this story begins with, with Ian and a teammate of his in Trinidad. For sure. So the story, uh, episode one starts out really with a friendship, a friendship between Ian Bain, uh, who was 11 years old, his older friend, Alvin Henderson, who is arguably the greatest soccer player at Howard University that few people know. Um, and uh, both boys were teammates and friends at St. Mary's College in, in Trinidad, and they were the two stars on the team. And uh, they both aspired to play soccer at the highest level, wherever that would take them. Maybe it would be uh, Europe. Maybe it would be America. But they had dreams that they didn't even know where it would land. Fast forward a couple of years and young Lincoln Phillips, who had just been hired on Howard's staff as an assistant coach, went back to his homeland because Lincoln Phillips is a Trinidadian legend playing on the national team as a goalkeeper, went down there to run a camp, a clinic, and saw Alvin. Uh, young Alvin, who is on a good day, 5'8", 135 pounds. And back then he was probably 100 pounds, but he just had a nose for the goal. Lincoln Phillips saw him and said, young man, what are you, uh, what are you doing for university? And he said, well, my father's in England and I, I plan to go there and, and see where it takes me. And he said, well, I'm at Howard University in America. Would you like to come to America? And, uh, Alvin didn't consult with his family. He made the decision right there on the spot to go to America. So he was on the 1970 team that went to the semis and lost in the final four. And by now, he is a rising sophomore in 71. And he told his coach, hey, uh, coach, if you're looking for players, I have a player. He is my best friend. And he's a player who you don't even have to look at tape of. Not that they had tape. Uh, Ian Bain is a difference maker. And then he and Ian uh, came together and formed just a dynamic duo. Howard had a good soccer program in the 60s. They they won an NAIA title in the early 1960s. There was a coach there, Ted Chambers, who had been around for a couple of decades. And what Lincoln Phillips, when he arrived at that program, did was he innovated. He went overseas to find players because there was a dearth of great American talent at that time. And Tell us how he did that, because this this Howard team in 71 had players from Nigeria and Trinidad and Bermuda, multiple countries. There were only, what, a couple of Americans on this team. How did that that happen, that he discovered this market inefficiency that, hey, we can recruit kids from overseas who want to come to America to play soccer? I think it was either a stroke of brilliance or a stroke of, of genius or a stroke of luck. Uh, Lincoln Phillips, as I mentioned on the front, is from Trinidad and Tobago. He's a Trinidadian legend there. He knows everything about the landscape there. So when he got the coaching nod, where are you going to look for talent? He went home because he knew the coaches there. He knew the players there. He knew all the playing grounds there. So he looked there first. And secondly, Howard University, as you know, is an international institution. So you have everybody from the student body is all over for all over the world, all over from the Caribbean, all over uh, Africa. So your pool is already international. So you add in what he knew and what the what the campus looked like. And really 
what he did was he innovated what soccer is to know. If you any know anything about college soccer and the landscape today, comb any of the top 25 program schools and you'll find seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, sometimes 20 international players on their rosters today. So what Lincoln Phillips did in 1970 and 71 uh, really was innovative, but it was a, a early look of what college soccer would end up looking like. I'm sort of curious about the Howard of it all, because there's a couple of things here. I mean, one, how many other, and do you know how many other HBCUs were competitive at that level at soccer back in that day? But also, I mean, for people that don't know about Howard, like we're not talking about an athletics powerhouse, but I need to stretch the imagination in any sport because it was great hearing the, the sports editor of the campus newspaper talk about the big men on campus and everything, but it wasn't like the football or basketball teams were great either. I mean, this is not, <laughs> we're not talking about Prairie View or something like that, right? So um, could you just, you know, kind of ground our listeners in that, like how improbable a powerhouse that Howard became out of all of that? So highly improbable. And that, that student that you mentioned is uh, Lena Williams. Shout out to Lena Williams, who having her on the podcast and having her play the role that she did was a stroke of, of, of luck. I'd love to take credit for it, but I can't. Now to your question about was this and the improbability of Howard's early success, extremely improbable. So one of the names on the, on the podcast that you heard was Keith Acquie. Keith Acquie went to Howard to go to law school. He did not go to Howard to play soccer while going to law school. He was literally, the story goes, uh, and Keith passed away in 2016, literally walking on campus and saw the guys kicking the ball around and said, all right, let me see if I can kick around with them. Is that a real team? He was invited. Coach Lincoln saw him touch the ball and said, son, what in the world did I just die and go to heaven? Keith was 25 years old. That was 1970. And in that year, he scored 25 goals to match his age, which I believe prompted the NCAA to say, wait a minute, what's going on here? And that was the sort of the beginning of that. So the answer to your question is highly improbable. Howard was then and still is an academic institution. So Keith Acquie was at the center of this NCAA investigation, along with a couple more Player Stefan mentioned in his intro that there was an anonymous complaint. You say in the podcast, I believe, that the coach of the Naval Academy said something pretty explicit, which was they have too many foreign players. So there's all sorts of questions that unfortunately I think are really challenging to answer. Who gave this complaint? Was this an explicitly racist act by the NCAA? And I think the fact that these questions are so difficult to answer is a part of the reason why um, it's such a sad story. Like you'd at least like to be able to get to the to the bottom of it to know who was responsible, and maybe that would also have a pathway to potentially rectifying this. I mean, how have you kind of come to think about the unanswered questions at the center of this, as you know, and your goal of trying to draw attention and maybe get some some justice after all these years? Uh, so. It's something that I've wrestled with and continue to wrestle with, even with the podcast being out. As completely as I feel the story is being told, has been told, not all the questions are answered. To your point about, you know, who was the whistleblower? I didn't talk to the whistleblower, so I can only present arguments that uh, present reasonable doubt, right? And I think you do any research, you'll find out and see where that whistleblower points to the Navy coach. But again, he's not here to speak for himself. So we don't know for sure, but it points to him. We don't know for sure. The Navy coach was also the one who was like measuring their field to make sure it was like legal. He seemed like he was like snooping around a lot. Absolutely. And he's no fool. He knew that when he faced Howard, he was looking at an L and he was looking at an L with a big deficit. So this, you know, I, I, I tell my sons all the time about a hurt fighter. A hurt fighter is a dangerous fighter. That's who the Navy coach was. So he was doing everything, finding everything in his arsenal to protect his house. And I, and I get it. And sometimes people cheat to do that. So can't prove that. I don't believe we proved that the NCAA had it in for Howard specifically. But what I do know from my research and plenty of conversations with a lot of people is that here it is. You have this black school, this all black team, 
not six black players, all black team. They all have an accent. It's 1970, 71 America, which feels a lot like 2023 America. So you can just imagine they step on this landscape, which is majority white, looking a certain way, sounding a certain way, playing a certain way. And Howard University is the exact antithesis of that. I'm threatened. Call it, am I racist? Reasonable doubt. I'm threatened. And we got to do everything that we can to make sure that they don't gain ground. If you heard Harry Edwards in it, he's the one who, 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 who just says, hey, man, I'm Harry Edwards. I'm going to tell you what it is. You're too young to really understand what you're seeing here. They did not want this thing that Howard was building to grow because it would change the landscape of the sport. And to hear Harry Edwards tell you that, uh, it's like the voice of God. You know, obviously Slate is a podcast company as well. And I know the process of making narrative podcasts can be very frustrating because of the people that you don't get. And you talked to Lincoln Phillips. I mean, you say you've mentioned that you, you talk with him, but obviously we don't hear his voice, you know, in current day on the podcast. So why, why didn't he want to participate? Why didn't he want to, you know, get a little podcast crew to come in and record him and talk about this? Sure. And thank you for asking that. And so Coach Lincoln was asked, was offered an opportunity to be on the podcast. It was our intention to always include him. But Coach Lincoln uh, has a competing project. It's not a podcast, but he has a competing project. And contractually, uh, he could not participate. He sold his life rights to Common and some Hollywood producers for a feature film. Correct. And, and therefore, he was prohibited from participating in, in this particular, uh, in, our, in our effort. But I, I will say that, and I've been hearing a lot from all, all the elders and, and all the people from that generation who are hearing the story for the first time, completely for the first time, and we're glad to have included some archival uh, audio from Coach Lincoln, and, uh, current day Coach Lincoln and young man, feisty Coach Lincoln at the 1972 uh, NCAA reception. And while I would have loved to have another 10, 11, 12 minutes of current day Lincoln Phillips, we were able to include other voices that we've never heard, right? I don't say that kind of took its place, but helped to complete eyes, if that's a word the story. So we wish we would have had him, but I, I don't think that it hurt the story. So the NCA investigation focused on a bunch of rules that existed at the time, one about academic grades and entrance exams, another about how many, about foreign students, another on maximum eligibility. I don't think we need to get into the um, the nitty-gritty of those, you know, the NCAA wound up repealing one of those rules. Howard and one of the players sued the NCAA, and the judges the next year, I think it was 74, decided that the NCAA's rules were in fact vague, but they could be applicable, and they the, the court did not do anything to overturn the NCAA's decision. There's also no allegation that Howard ever intentionally broke any rules. Correct. Um, and Lincoln Phillips over the years has said that well, I just didn't have the kinds of resources that you have now to ensure player eligibility and do that kind of due diligence. Um, beyond that, though, Mark, the historical wrong here seems to be that that Howard was punished for who they were at a time in American history where punishing an upstart team of all black players did not seem surprising. In your reporting, have you had any luck getting the NCAA to consider restoring Howard's championship? And I'll add here that St. Louis, the runner-up in 1971, the coach, Harry Keough, a very famous American soccer personality, he refused to accept the trophy after it was stripped from Howard. Yes, and also Harry Keough mentioned, and you heard him in episode three of the Bison uh, Project, he literally said, hey, based on the information that I've seen and based on the fact that I know Lincoln Phillips and Howard, I could see how he feels the way he feels that Howard's been targeted. So Harry Keough said that. Yeah, that's that's tough. And 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 like I said, our, our our goal here is a lot of people have said if this were 2023 America with social media and more media, there would be a groundswell of reaction to Howard. 
we're all sports fans here and we follow what's going on in college football right now, college basketball and across the landscape of sports. And if you want to compare sins, you want to compare uh, wrongdoings and misdeeds, what Howard did intentionally, unintentionally, it hardly compares. So my my goal, if I could just pie in the sky is and to answer your question, no, I haven't had any any luck reaching the NCAA, not in 2015 when I produced Redemption Song and uh, not throughout the making of this this podcast. But I tag them on all my social posts and I see them creeping on my LinkedIn. So hopefully they've listened. Uh, I'm sure they've listened by this point. I'm thankful the podcast has made the rounds and I'm hoping this uh, conversation here will help plant more seeds. It's my goal, guys, that we're going to have a conversation with the NCAA. This thing's going to end and it's going to be in a nice, happy bow. And that 71 team is going to get their visit to the White House and uh, meet the current president or the next president and have their day and have their trophy back. And then Howard's going to say, you know what? The trophy needs its own space. So the next time we have visitors, they won't have to stumble upon it. And so that's my hope, my pie in the sky hope, dreams, that that's what will come uh, from the Bison Project. Can I dream? You should keep dreaming. That's a, that would be a, a wrong righted for the NCAA to reverse that decision. Mark Wright wrote and reported the Bison Project, three-part podcast series from Meadowlark Media. You should download and check it out. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you all for having me. All right, for our last segment of 2023, we're going to give you a little blast from the past. This is from October 2020, and the less said about it, the better, because the whole point of this segment when we ran it was that it was a mystery that Stefan and Joel were going to have to guess who this person was. There are a couple specific references here. It might be a little bit dated, but I think you'll enjoy it now as much as we did back then. And stick around after, because we're going to have a little postscript from Joel at the end. All right, enjoy. And now, I would like to welcome you all to Hang Up and Win, America's favorite sports-themed game show. Joining us, as always, are our panelists, Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis. Thank you for being with us today, Joel. Oh, God. A catamaran is at stake here, from what I understand. And Stefan, thank you. Great to be with you, Josh. And we're delighted to have our celebrity guest for this week. Bruce, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate you having me. All right. Now... Everybody's going to get to know Bruce, Joel, and Stefan. You can ask him any question that you like. Your goal is to figure out why he's joined us on the show today. The only hint I'll give you is that he is a sports innovator. And don't worry, if it seems like you guys need some help, I will help you out. But maybe you won't need any help. So who wants to get us started? You can ask anything you like. Anything? Okay. I mean, <laughs> who are you, Bruce? Not a second. <laughs> May you ask him what sport he played? Okay, we can ask what sport? Okay. Yeah. Bruce, what sport do you play? Uh, I play college football. Oh, okay. Uh-oh. I'm excited now. Bruce, you know that Joel played college football as well, so. Okay. Okay, Joel. Okay. Where are you, where are you originally from, Bruce? I'm originally from Arkansas. Oh, okay. What part of Arkansas? I'm originally from Little Rock. Little Rock, Arkansas. Oh, man. Okay. Bruce, huh. did, you, did you go to a major college and play football? I think it was a major college. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you could just ask him where he went. Where'd you go to? Where did you go to school? I went to the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff. <gasps> oh, okay. Oh, man. Uh, what position did you play, Bruce? Play quarterback. Joel, explain oh. to the listeners if they don't, if they don't remember what's, what's your connection here. Well, I mean, I always like to say UAPB made me. My, my parents met there. My mother is from Pine Bluff. So, oh, man. Okay. Bruce, what did you attend uh, Arkansas Pine Bluff and play quarterback in the 1970s? I attended UAPB and played in the 90s. My father attended and played quarterback in the 70s. Hmm, okay. No illegal Googling, Stefan. I'm not Googling. Nobody's okay. Googling. Nobody's, Nobody's Googling. Googling. Nobody's Googling. <laughs> you said quarterback, right? Yes, sir. All right. So here's a here's a hint. So Bruce, when he was playing quarterback for UAPB in the 90s, I mentioned that He's a sports innovator. You know, what th- What his innovation was, you know, he made a suggestion that 
nobody had ever suggested before. And his team kind of employed a strategy upon, upon Bruce's suggestion. Did your team ever punt, Bruce? We did punt. We did punt, yes, sir. I like where your head's at, though, Stefan. Thank not, you. Not, not one of these teams that never punted. Did your team huddle, Bruce? Uh, we huddled. We huddled, yes. We, we huddled a little bit. We were, we were no huddle, but we did employ the huddle uh, strategy. <sighs> How do you think they're doing so far, Bruce? They, they're heading in the right direction. They're definitely <laughs> heading in the right direction. Oh, man. Okay. Um... So here's another hint for you guys. I wanted to have Bruce come on the show because what his innovation was is really apropos to something that was in the news in football this weekend, in, in college and in the NFL. Huh. In college and what, what happened this weekend? Hmm. Oh, man. Hold on. I th- uh, nobody got coronavirus, right? <laughs> I don't think they had, don't think they had coronavirus in the 90s. Man, I'm trying to think what happened this weekend. Did like the two point conversion? Oh, was it the first two point conversion? Did you go for two point conversions every time? No, sir. Oh, okay. There was a two point conversion in that game, though. Okay, okay. Oh, man. Um, I think I know your last name, though, now. <laughs> Do you want to give him a hint, Bruce? Uh, yeah. The hint is strategy wise, this has only been used at the end of games. Oh, that's a good hint. Oh, at the end of games. Maybe at the end of games. And a lot of people don't think that or didn't think it was actually a strategy that should be used. My brain as a kicker says that you guys onside kicked all the time, but that's not the answer. No, that was I would place that as a strategy also. That would it would be in the same category as an onside kick. Mm -hmm. All right. I got one more hint for you guys. And this is when I talked to Bruce yesterday, he told me that he came up with a strategy playing a college football video game on Sega Genesis. What? Whoa, man. Was it was it Bill Walsh college football? <laughs> it sure was. was it sure was. <laughs> I had that game. I had that game. Yeah. 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 We um, used to play it all the time in a uh, hunt hall, one of the dorms on campus. Oh my God. Okay. Man. Hey, hey, let me get one more hint. And several of us became coaches and we use it still to this day. Whew. Man, I'm just running, I'm trying to run the gamut of every possible game this week. Bruce, uh, also tell tell Joel where you uh where you live now. Uh, I'm now in Houston, Texas. Dog. I coach high school football Dog. in Houston, Texas. Madison Tech, Madison High School on Southwest Side. Yes, sir. Right off form. Oh, wow. Yes. Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Joel, Joel, you can understand why I was excited to have, yeah. uh, have Bruce well, on the show. I learned to drive over in Madison. That's why I took my, <laughs> yeah. my driving test was over there back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's the new Madison now. It's, it, yeah. We have a new, new school. Hey, Bruce, does the innovation have to do with the quarterback position specifically? Well, no. The strategy has to do, uh, I'm putting it like the strategy has to do with uh, last minute game hero heroics last minute game heroics all right i'm gonna give oh, you was guys it, was it like a, oh, mm. say what oh, you say it, what you're gonna say joel no, it's not um not not like a hook and ladder like did you run a hook and ladder every i don't know it's similar to that you, you, you're warming up oh man. all right stefan you want one more guess and then we'll have just we'll have bruce tell the story i'm thinking we got close oh i know what it is you didn't score a touchdown. You took a knee at the one-yard line oh. when you could have run in. <laughs> oh, my God. All right, Bruce, tell him the story of what happened. That's it. In, That's this, in this game. 1994 NAIA playoff semifinals. We were actually playing Western Montana in 1994 uh, semifinals of the NAIA playoffs. It was a shootout. The game was a shootout. I mean, I think it was 60-53 to 53 final score. However, Western Montana had the ball running the clock out. And it was, it was still enough time in the game where they had to actually run plays. So we were trying to figure out, you know, what we could do to get the ball back, you know, with an opportunity to control the destiny, you know, of, of winning the game or tying the game, going overtime. So I think you you guys were down by one and they had the ball with like 90 seconds to you go. let them score. That's, I think that's what it was. And, oh. uh, the coach called timeout, 
uh, and came over to the sideline. The team, our team came over to the sideline. And uh, with me playing quarterback, I wasn't the starting quarterback at the time. I was a backup quarterback. But however, the head coach, who was Lee Hartman at the time, allowed the quarterbacks to have a say in, you know, in the offensive strategy, you know, because, you know, we, we used to meet with him all the time. And so when the team came over the sideline, I went over to the head coach and said, Coach, the only way we can get the ball back if we let him score. He looked at me and was like, <laughs> okay, okay, we're doing that. we do doing that. But, but anyway, you know, it came about because we used to play Bill Watts college football all the time in the dorm rooms. And my former teammate, Cedric Sherrod, who is now the head coach of Bastrop High School in Louisiana, you know, we used to always talk about, you know, the opportunity of being coaches because, you know, we knew what we wanted to be at that time. You know, we were all in school studying. I was studying kinesiology because I wanted to coach. He was doing the same thing. A couple other, you know, my teammates. But anyway, uh, we used to always come up with little strategies and talk football in the dorms. And one thing we used to do was if the game was on the line and, you know, the game was close, we always wanted the ball at the end to dictate, you know, whether we win or lose. So we used to let you score and get the ball back. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, this came up in the game. And uh, like I say, Coach Hartman uh, was was nice enough to listen to me. And we went out and let him score. But when they did it, that was the most amazing thing because as, you know, the play was developing, you could see the head coach on the sideline jumping up like, fall down! <laughs> but the guy was wide open, headed to the end zone, and uh, he scored. They kicked the field goal, went up by eight, and um, we went 93 yards. And we had a two-point play we had been working on all year long, so we knew it was going to work. We scored the touchdown, got the two-point conversion, and went on and win in overtime. Wow. And so, wow, Bruce, in my research, I couldn't find – any other example of anybody allowing the other team to score on purpose before you came up with the idea? Is that what you've what you've come to understand that you were the first one to suggest this in a real non-video game based football game? Well, I mean, uh, the thing about it is that you know, I went to HBCU and going to HBCU and being in a situation where a lot of things that we did on campus was innovator you know we didn't have a lot of resources so we always had to think outside the box so you know how we could do this how we could do that uh you know how we could advance this and how we could advance that now i'm not saying that you know me making this call was you know in line with some of the greats of you know hbcus and the ideas that have stimulated from you know from that but um just looking back on it we had never heard of it and of course you know at the time you didn't have the worldwide way of social media. So, you know, if they did do it, it wouldn't be as, you know, broadcast as it is now. But it's definitely to see other coaches and programs employing, you know, our strategy <laughs> to help them. That's crazy. So I will give the floor over to you guys, Joel and Stefan, in a second. But before I do that, we've got a clip that we want to play. And you didn't have the World Wide Web back then, but you did have Sports Center with Keith Olbermann and Dan Patrick. Let's oh. listen to a clip. Pine bluffing black. They trail Western Montana 46-45 with a buck 30 left, and they were just intercepted. So on the sidelines, Pine Bluff's third string quarterback, Bruce Swinton Jr., tells his coach, let them score now or they'll just run out the clock whenever we'll they get, get the ball back. So they get out of the way of Western Montana's Paul Snow, Western Montana 53, Pine Bluff 45. Pine Bluff down by eight. They get the ball back. At least they've got a chance. So, Bruce, you're immortalized by Keith Olbermann on SportsCenter. That's cool. That's incredible, man. That must have been incredibly cool at the time. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was cool. It, you know, at the time, everybody on campus enjoyed it. We were playing for an opportunity to uh, go to the national championship. We had just came off the death penalty in 93. It was our second year back from the death penalty. And, you know, it was, it was really an emotional time for the university and the program coming off the death penalty. The second year back, and we were playing for an uh, opportunity to win a national championship. It was really an enjoyable time for not only the football program, but the university in whole. I'm just floored. So, like, 
you said you wanted to get into coaching. So, like, after you graduated, did you get right into coaching then? And where did you go? I did. Um, it was amazing. My first coaching job was at the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff. I was a student assistant there, and Coach Harmon actually started my coaching career. I, uh, after my year there, I went and was a graduate assistant for Patrick Nix. It's no, uh, I mean, it's an amazing uh, time. I worked with maybe three or four college football's top coaches at a very young age. Me and Patrick Nix was the exact same age. He was the head coach of Henderson State, and I was the GA. I'll never, never forget interviewing with him. And that was one of the things that interested him about me, you know, working with him. We were the exact same age at the time. He got an opportunity to be a head coach, and he was giving me an opportunity to, you know, start my coaching career. On that staff, we had Charles Kelly, who is now at Alabama, used to be the defensive coordinator at Georgia Tech. Florida State, and a couple of different places. Doug Meacham, who is the offensive coordinator at TCU now. Yeah. And, you know, of course, uh, Patrick Nix, he's a high school head coach in Alabama now. So, Bruce, 25 years in coaching, have you ever had the opportunity to let the other team score again? I've never had to employ that strategy, uh, but I have been blessed to make some other calls, you know, you know, game winning calls. You would, we've, I've never had to use that strategy. So. <laughs> but when you see it on TV, when other when it happens in other games, what do you think? I, I just smile. I just <laughs> smile. You know, uh, you know, it's 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 amazing. Like I said, I went to a small school, HBCU. You know, we don't get a lot of you know the publicity or the you know recognition. So you know, when I when I see things like that happen, is you know, it's just another. You know, significant to me is just another significant part that I feel like HBCUs play in the grand scheme of things. That's great. And yeah, we're glad to be able to give you uh, the publicity that you deserve. Yeah. You know, it, it seemed like a thing that you you guys had to your advantage in 1994 was the element of surprise. Like you mentioned that the other coach was telling him to kneel down, but it's not like at that time players were really used to the idea of the other team letting them score and the idea of kneeling. Whereas in the games this weekend that I mentioned, so Indiana, Penn State, and then Atlanta Falcons and Detroit Lions in the NFL, both the, you know, the Penn State runner and then Todd Gurley for the Falcons, they both understood what that they should kneel, but they accidentally scored <laughs> touchdowns. They accidentally fell into the end zones, which allowed Indiana and Detroit to come back. But um, it must be it must be harder um, now, Bruce, to pull this off than it was for you guys in 1994. You definitely know that they understand that it's a possibility that it could happen. But whenever you put a football in a, a player's hand, mm-hmm. and you know it's hard to tell them not to go score a touchdown. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the biggest treat in football yeah, is getting in that end zone. So. You know, it's hard for you to tell somebody not to go score, you know, when it's there. I mean, it's 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 just difficult. I can only imagine, you know, what's going through a person's head that, you know, has the ball with an opportunity to score a touchdown. It's gonna to be hard for him not to get, you know, to go ahead and score. It would be for me. <laughs> Joel, Joel, did you ever have the opportunity to intentionally not score a touchdown? No, but I I, I took every touchdown opportunity I had, though. I found right. I, don't know, I, don't know, I don't know if I would have been turning one down. Yeah, the, the running back mentality or the quarterback mentality has got to be, what's well, on the defense? I'm scoring. Yeah. <laughs> right. Stop them right. on the other end. Yeah. You know, when you called me and reached out to me yesterday, you know, I, the vision – I started playing it again in my head. It's been 25 years, and uh, I can still see the guy with the ball and the coach running on the sideline trying to get it <laughs> to stop. But, you know, like you said at the time, the element of surprise, you know, they didn't, you know, people didn't think about it then. So, you know, the coach, it dawned on him as the play was actually taking, taking place. And by that time, it was too late. Well, Bruce Wen Jr., it was such a delight to yeah. have you on and to give you credit. Josh, you really got us, man. You, I mean, this was right up the alley. At the time bro. that we Bruce, recorded this, was this so segment, much fun. Uh, Bruce Wen Jr. was an offensive coordinator for Madison High School in Houston. Maybe if you're 
big enough football fan, you'll know that that's where Vince Young played high school football. Bruce Winton was not his offensive coordinator at the time, but uh, <laughs> but it, it is the same school. But anyway, since that episode, Coach Swinton has moved on to another school. Uh, two years later, he accepted the same role at a bigger and newer high school program called Summer Creek, and it's on the north side of town uh, in the Houston area. Summer Creek opened in 2009 and is sort of a burgeoning local powerhouse. Uh, one of its products is currently Kelvin Banks Jr., who is the starting left offensive tackle at the University of Texas and was a first-team All-Big 12 selection this year as a sophomore. Under head coach Kenny Harrison, Summer Creek has advanced deep into the playoffs every year but could not manage to get past Katy High School, which is another local power. But this year, with a high-powered offense coordinated by Bruce Swinton Jr. that averaged 39 points a game, Coming into the championship, Summer Creek made it to the Classic A Division II state final for the first time in state history. It's a tremendous accomplishment for Summer Creek to have gotten that far, and I hope people remember that in spite of what happened to them in the title game. Unfortunately, Summer Creek ran up against DeSoto High School, uh, which might have an outside claim as the nation's number one team, and is a program that's produced a bunch of NFL players you may have heard of before, like Von Miller, James Prochet. Anyway, DeSoto went on to win 74-14, to 14, and officials were forced to go to a running clock in the second half. But please, take heart in the wise post-game words of Coach Swinton, who posted on uh, Facebook and Twitter later, No need to hang your head, Bulldog Nation. Real tradition is being formed right in front of your eyes. 13 years school existence. Six with Coach Harrison, that's the head coach. Hashtag championship pedigree. This won't be the last time you hear from Summer Creek Bulldogs football. 6A Division II state runner-ups. Hashtag Bulldog Pride. And you're right, Coach. We hope it's not the last time we hear from you. I, I think most of those, they were just letting them score. Yeah, I mean, I, they, they just want to get, you, you. I mean, you got to have the ball, right? You know what I'm saying? So if you, you let them control score your quick, destiny. get back. Yeah, right. You know, I'm sure they won time of possession, probably. So. All right. Thank you guys for a great year. Uh, it was really fun, as always. And thank you, uh, listeners. That is our show for the year. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. <laughs>